Hello, I'm Ollie Henderson. Welcome to the Future Work Life Podcast. Today I speak to Naomi Shragai, author of The Man Who Mistook His Job for His Life. Naomi is a consultant, a coach, and uniquely a business psychotherapist. Her book focuses on the unconscious motivations behind our behaviours and decisions in the workplace, and it's based on 30 years of experience working with organisations and executives, as well as individuals, couples, and families. We had a riveting discussion covering topics including the long-term effects our personal histories have on our careers, whether the trend towards authenticity is actually meaningful, whether we should bring emotion into the workplace and, if so, how much, why autonomy isn't always a good thing and why mistakes aren't just inevitable, they're essential to our learning and development. If you enjoy this conversation, please make sure you check out previous podcast episodes and subscribe. Please also look up the future work-life newsletter on Substack. I'll make it easy for you by giving you a link in the show notes. I'll also include links to Naomi's book, which is an excellent read, as well as her social feeds. So on to my conversation with Naomi Shragai. I started by asking her why our personal past plays such a dominant role in our professional present. Uh, first, I have to start by explaining that when people come to work, you know, they come to work with much more than their skills, their work experience, their talents, their aspirations, their ambitions. You know, everybody also comes to work with an internal life. And and that internal life, and that's where we hold all of our early and past experiences. Much of that actually does remain in our unconscious. So it colors our uh, perceptions quite a lot. Um, It informs how we read situations, how how we relate to others, how we manage our feelings, how we communicate, it it informs much more than we recognize. So the reason we revisit the past is so we can, um, so we can develop some sort of, so we're able to manage those parts of ourselves. So in other words, when parts of our past remain in our unconscious, they have much more effect on our thoughts and behaviors than we recognize. So that's why uh, I think it's so important to talk about the past. This is why sometimes people in the workplace can confuse colleagues, for example, for early figures in their family life. So, for example, your boss might might, might tend to trigger feelings you had towards authority figures from your past you might feel towards your boss Mm. as you felt towards your father or you might feel towards colleagues where you had towards your siblings um, in your family life so without knowing it there's a subtle way that we recreate the dramas from our early family life in the workplace and normally that's not too much of a problem but what I'm suggesting is sometimes when tensions and conflicts erupt or people find that they have obstacles in their career development, sometimes the best way forward is to pause, reflect back on the past, try to understand one's early experiences and unconscious motivations, and oftentimes the answers and the solutions lie there. So that's my approach for dealing with people. They come to me with all sorts of problems. And, you know, if you can solve a problem on your own, for example, if you've been encouraged to let go of control, if you've been encouraged to delegate more, and you know you need to do that because you're starting to be overwhelmed and overburdened and feeling overly responsible, and you know the right thing to do is to 
hand over, hand over work to delegate more. However, if you're not able to do that for whatever reason, even though you know it's better for the business and better for you, but you're still not able to let go of control, that's when I suggest you need to think more deeply and understand perhaps what the unconscious motivations might be. We'll talk more about that as we go on. Yeah, definitely. And and when do you do that? Perhaps you have a feeling at work and then you go away upon and reflect upon it in order to help you next time you experience that feeling and respond better. Is, is that how you'd approach it? Because in the moment, to very quickly try and rationalize why you might be experiencing a certain feeling, understand how that relates to your past, and then change your behavior, it seems very challenging to do that in, in the split second when you're having an interaction with somebody in the workplace. Presumably, this is work which is done over time. That's right. You know, initially, I think uh, everyone, um, most people find their thoughts and their feelings very convincing. So, for example, if they think their boss is against them, it's very difficult to people talk to talk people out of that perception once, once they've right. convinced themselves. So oftentimes it's helpful to talk to someone else, myself, a close colleague, a mentor, someone else to help gain perspective. But you're right, in the moment when one's kind of hijacked or in the grip of strong feelings, it's a very difficult moment to stop and reflect. So those those moments of reflection often happen not in the moment, often after the event, or it's really it's an ongoing process, learning to reflect and think about one's feelings, one's reactions, one's impulses, that that's an ongoing process. And I'm always trying to encourage people to reflect more in that way, that not to forget that they also carry these, if you like, unconscious impulses or motivations alongside them. So, you know, for example, we want to be perfectly motivated to be creative because that's what our job demands of us, um, to innovate, to be creative, to take chances, to take risks. And consciously, you might think, well, that's obviously a good idea. But then an unconscious part of you might fear exposing yourself to judgments or criticism. So it's an example of sometimes how people are oftentimes in conflict with themselves. A conscious part of them wants to succeed, wants to do the job, to take risks, to innovate, to do all the things that you know our job requires of us. But then there's this deeper unconscious part that also plays a part. And if we don't come to understand that unconscious part, that unconscious part can dominate and be very powerful. And it can even kind of overrule our conscious ambitions. So that's why it's important. So, you know, people might wonder, well, why am I so fearful of making a mistake? Clearly, it's not a big deal. It's expected in the workplace. So why am I overwhelmed by it? So if those sorts of feelings overwhelm and interfere with our, I guess, with our performance, then it's a good idea to stop and think about it. And you are a trained psychotherapist. And while I think it's much more common for people to talk about therapy in their general life, is it very common to come across psychotherapists within the work environment or are you... Very unique in that, yeah. in that way. Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question. 
I am fairly unique that way. I guess these days I call myself yeah. a work therapist because um, yeah. uh, I specialize, of course, in work-related issues. And there's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, you know, in the workplace, first of all, people don't have time to process a lot of this. So there's not really much time in the, in the workplace. But and the other thing is that businesses are oftentimes looking for quick solutions. They just want to solve things. Oftentimes when people say to me, yeah. I'm sure they say to you, Tell me what to do. Tell me how to resolve this. How will this make a difference? Tell me the steps required. Well, this approach is a different sort of approach. It's much more reflective approach. But of course, if we don't take the time to think through some problems, more kind of difficulties might arise further down the line if things aren't given a chance and thought through. So I think that's... Mm. And then, uh, you know, work also... The other thing about work is, you know, work doesn't really allow for a lot of strong feelings, you know, and, and that's not a bad thing. We don't want people in the workplace processing a lot of strong feelings or even expressing a lot of strong feelings, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. And it doesn't mean that they don't influence dynamics in the workplace above all else, you know, feelings of kind of envy, resentment, hostility, frustration, all of those strong feelings play a part, whether they're acknowledged or not. So you're right to say that this kind of approach isn't usual for many businesses. However, if business, if, if there is a workplace that finds this sort of tensions and also that really interfere with the functioning of the workplace, then you know, I really suggest this is a really good, good approach to really understand what what's actually going on. What are the underlying dynamics? What's happening here? So that's what I'm always encouraging mm. people to do. So I'm I'm hoping I've been writing about this for the Financial Times for I don't know nearly ten years now, and I'm hoping to introduce businesses to a, a different way of thinking, a new approach to thinking about problems, to understand the hidden motivations yeah. behind some of their problems. So I think the reaction has been extremely positive. People are really, really interested. I think sometimes they need a bit of help in knowing actually how to engage with this process, how to use it, and uh, how, to this, how to support their staff this way. Maybe it's difficult to understand how much of your feelings to bring into the workplace because i think we maybe that the last 18 months during covid i think maybe that barrier between home and work life's dropped a little bit you know the the fact that you can see into people's homes you get a better sense about the challenges which are going on in people's lives i think maybe we've become more attuned to the fact that people have very different circumstances and there's stuff going on in their lives apart from work but i wonder as you say how many of those feelings you actually want to bring into your work interactions uh, there's also a bit of a trend certainly in you, know, you see in job descriptions a lot now about being authentic authenticity but is that always a good thing or as you suggested perhaps is there a point where actually you just need to put your professional face on um it's it, you know it's another really good question because people throw that phrase around quite a lot be your authentic self but what mm. does that mean actually you know, there's so many sides to ourselves. What, what does that yeah. actually mean? You know, in the workplace, you know, obviously there's much more to it. Well, we bring all of ourselves to the workplace. The question is, how much of us do we expose in the workplace of ourselves? 
And, you know, oftentimes that takes some, I guess it takes some thinking. It takes a capacity to, you know, be able to have some feelings, perhaps, but not act on them. So you notice that, you know, Mm. perhaps you're seething with rage, really angry in the workplace because you've been overlooked or someone's taken credit for your work, not uncommon, seething with rage. Now, how do you manage those really strong feelings in the workplace is, is, is really quite important. Now, if you were in another situation, perhaps in, in your social circle or in your family, you might, you might just offload. You, you, know, you, you might just get really, really angry, but it's not so appropriate in the workplace. So, you know, in, in the workplace, I think people have to be a lot more skillful in terms of how they manage their strong feelings, not to suggest that they don't exist. Mm. So, you you know, it's important to learn to express some feelings, of course. It's not bad in the workplace to show some vulnerability, whatever level of work you're at. It's important that people bring their humanity to work, that everybody knows that everybody's human and they bring into work their histories, their personal lives, their social lives, their feelings. They bring all of that with them. So showing vulnerability, mm. of course, is 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 really useful in the workplace. But at some point, it's also important to contain some of your strong feelings uh, and to, rather than act impulsively on feelings, rather to think about them. It's much more skillful. Yeah. Uh, so does that mean that you're compromising on your authenticity? I don't think so. I think you're just um, learning to respond and respond more skillfully. To a greater or lesser degree, everyone has experienced some form of struggle in their lives. Of course, that forms who we are. And presumably, struggle can sometimes lead to positive outcomes you know both in terms of the way you develop and and respond to further challenges in the future can struggle contribute to being better at your job how do you see the sort of struggles which people are having to deal with in their personal lives translate into their careers of course it can be a really positive experience you know one of the things i talk a lot about and actually i've dedicated a whole chapter of this in my book is uh how people use some of the Uh, skills that they've learned to navigate a dysfunctional family or traumatic experience, oftentimes those very skills is what's behind people's success in the workplace. So, you know, through traumas, through struggling with whatever it might be, you know, people also, everybody has, most people certainly have a healthy side and a way that they manage the trauma or manage the dysfunction and that way of managing oftentimes translates into you know uh the sorts of skills people rely on in order to achieve you know there's an example in my chapter of a a client of mine who uh came a a working class family in liverpool quite a deprived area and this was a young as a child he was bullied severely at school but also in his home life he had he came from his father was very volatile and at times very violent and mother didn't do enough to protect him so here was this young child who was exposed to violence at home and violence in this at school and somehow as a child he had to find a way to navigate all this and he had to find a way to I guess 
protect himself. And what he learned as a child is he learned how to read people really, really carefully. He learned how to read their expressions so he wouldn't ignite any any anger. Uh, because if he got things wrong, he could be get beat up at home and at school. And sometimes he was regardless beat up. But, but, but learning to tune into people and to tune into situations made him really equipped him and protected him. He knew how to read people. He also eventually learned to give people what they wanted um, and what they needed. So it was a very powerful skill he learned in his childhood in order to navigate a quite a violent and volatile upbringing. But can you imagine how powerful those skills are in the workplace to be somebody, to be able to read people so well, so accurately, to give people exactly mm. what they needed, you know. So in the workplace, this translated into a lot of skills. And, you know, professionally, he actually was highly, highly successful. Now, there are some consequences to this, by the way. That's another story. But it's an example about sometimes in order to overcome our traumas, or not to love, but manage our traumas, overcome dysfunctional families, find a way to survive it all, the mechanisms we learn to survive often translate into very usable skills in the workplace. And I talk about this quite a lot. Um, as I suggested, there's an opposite side to it. There's a downside as well, but that's another conversation perhaps a bit longer. Yeah. In your experience, how much of this manifests unconsciously? So, you know, in, in the case of your client, when you came across him, had he just naturally found himself in a position where he was utilizing those skills? Or did you help him kind of create this personal narrative through which he could harness these experiences, identify the things which he'd learned from them and then take that into developing his career? No, this happens unconsciously, quite spontaneously and very naturally. You know, this is a way he learned to be in the world. And of course, the workplace mm. is an, also part of that world. So how he navigated his early world, you know, equipped him for managing working world in much the same way. People oftentimes navigate their working lives in a very similar way that they navigate their early lives. And this is what I see and this is what I talk about. But, you know, if your early life, if in your early life, you, you know, you felt quite safe and protected, you know, you had a family or parents on the whole who were kind of very interested in, in you and had your bad interests at heart most of the time, it's quite likely in the workplace you'll anticipate that people will be for you and support you. Um, but if, on the other hand, you know, you came from a background in your early experiences where that the people who are meant to look after you um, neglected you or harmed you in any way, you know, you might, you know, you're quite likely to bring those anxieties into the workplace. Um, you know, for people with extreme experiences, it might make them even feel a bit paranoid in the workplace, thinking people are against them when they're not against them they start to read situations wrongly. Like, for example, somebody from that kind of dysfunctional background might wrongly interpret their boss's attempts to micromanage and support as criticism. They might be thinking, doesn't he trust me? Why is he against me? Why is he always watching my work? When the boss's intention 
is really to help to support, to teach, and to guide. So this is mm. how early experiences can kind of, you can see how it can alter people's interpretations of events in the workplace. And, you know, yeah. sometimes it can really interfere. In other words, there, if people talk about creating a safe workplace, and of course, organizations have an opportunity to create the safest possible environment. But that's not the whole story, because people bring their internal lives into the workplace as well. And, you know, yeah. so it's also up to individuals to examine their own internal world. And, you know, this lack of safety that they experience, is it actual or is it perceived? In other words, is it from the past or does it exist in the present? You know, there's yeah. no easy solutions. Okay. You can you can understand how it could wreak, wreak so much confusion at work, hey? Yeah, yeah. No, it's very interesting. It's making me think right now, actually. I talk um, to a lot of my clients about the importance of autonomy and giving people the space, the trust to shape their jobs in ways which allow them to bring their unique skills and characteristics and personality to a role. But now I'm thinking to some people that might create a lack of psychological safety in a way you know it just depends on people's interpretation of it I, I probably always present autonomy as fundamentally a good thing but you know is there are there times where it's not you know are there risks to that do some people just respond better to an environment with with less autonomy well yes I mean I think you you've kind of answered the question poorly in a way <laughs> uh, the important thing is how people interpret autonomy hmm. you know some people yeah, some people thrive uh, with autonomy and flexibility. And I think these days I hear from a lot of people in the workplace with this emphasis on autonomy and flexibility. A lot of people are entering new roles all the time and they're lost. You know, they're lost. And, you know, their interpretation might be quite different. So I guess autonomy is is good, I see, you know, for people who are, Competent, confident in their role. People coming in new in a new role might not feel so comfortable with it. They might they might need more guidance, more instruction, more structure. So the thing to do, yeah. and I guess what I would suggest quite practically, is to find out who people are, have conversations with them, find out how they work best. It doesn't take much, you know, a few direct questions. Yeah. How do you work best? <laughs> Uh, you yeah. Know, uh, is it helpful if I check in with you once a day, once a week? Yeah. Uh, ask questions. Find out. Everyone's different. You know, micromanaging has gotten such a bad press these days that a lot of people are <laughs> nervous to step in and offer support for fear of how it might be perceived, that they might be perceived as being intrusive or interfering or not allowing people there's autonomy. It's got so many negative connotations. But you know, for some people, it might be just be just the thing. So yeah. I guess the main thing I'm trying to get across is, of course, we're all uniquely, uniquely different. And why would the same approach work for everyone in the workplace? Of course not. Yeah. Uh, so the thing to do is to find out yeah. who people are and how they work best. You write in your book and you talk about imposter syndrome. 
So imposter, I find it, I find this fascinating because even some of the most successful people that I've spoken to professionally experience imposter syndrome still after what you would objectively say has been an incredibly successful career. So why do those feelings manifest? Presumably they come from the experiences in your past as well. I'm interested in a couple of things. Why do we experience this? But also, can we harness it for good? Let me start where you're at and then I'll backtrack and answer your first question um i i think yes you know there's a lot of good things about the imposter syndrome look the imposter syndrome what is it it's just another word for self-doubts people doubt themselves and that's kind of normal and sometimes it's really important to have doubts because if you didn't doubt yourself you know you might create kind of blind spots you won't know your limitations you know, you'll think, well, there's really nothing to learn. Uh, I don't need to grow. I don't need to develop. You know, I'm I'm fine. So, you know, the opposite, not having any self-doubt is much, much worse. And also, those sorts of people are not so pleasant in the workplace because usually those are the people that are the know-it-alls. They know everything. They're pretty irritating mm-hmm. as well. So the opposite of self-doubt, which is being a know-it-all, you know, isn't very appealing. So there's a lot of good things about having self-doubts because you said you knew a lot of successful people who they would say, oh, I suffer with the imposter syndrome. But it's that sort of insecurity that's pushed push them to excel. And I think if you ask people and you pushed and dug a bit more deeply, they'll admit that, in fact, that's what's behind their success is these deep insecurities. So uh, that's why we find so many, you you find and talk to so many people who are successful and struggle with imposter. Well, that makes sense if you think about it in that way. So there's nothing really terrible about the imposter syndrome. It really is just normal. People feel anxious. They feel out of their depths you know, all those sorts of feelings, it's not really a problem unless it starts to affect people's performance or their decisions in the workplace. So it's not like something somebody has or doesn't have. That's the way it gets talked about these days, and that's wrong. It's not just one thing for everyone, uh, and it's not just a bad thing that needs to be gotten rid of. It's actually normal insecurities and self-doubt, and and it also kind of, you know, lies along a long continuum. So at one level, you know, it can be, it's not too difficult to live with self-doubt, and everybody should be able to cope with insecurities. If you can't, then you'll never grow, you'll never develop. It's kind of crucial for self-development to have insecurities. So insecurity is not a bad thing, and neither is self-doubt. But as, you know, but then somebody can move along this, continuum of imposter feelings if you like moving from a more mild or moderate end and then find themselves at a more extreme end where their feelings are so crippling that can't even perform you might have come across people for example that you've talked to who are let's say uh, excessive procrastinators they can't begin a task because they feel they won't be able to be successful at the end of it so that's kind of an example about where these feelings can be so extreme that it can undermine somebody's professional development. It, and it can harm a company as well, by the way, because if you have a leader uh, with imposter feelings and they're quite extreme, you know, what you can find is 
you have somebody at the top who doesn't trust his own intuition because they're so riddled with self-doubt. And if they don't trust themselves, then they're not likely to be able to trust people in their own companies. So the whole, all of innovation and growth can come to a halt because everyone becomes too anxious. A subject that's come up a couple of times is the idea of making mistakes and psychological safety. Now, clearly making mistakes is just part of life and it's particularly true at work. In fact, I had a conversation with one entrepreneur who said to me that if your team aren't making mistakes regularly, then you're not pushing hard enough. So I'm just thinking whether we should reframe the mistakes we've made in the past as a positive learning experience. Well, um, I think everyone has to know that mistakes are inevitable. So, um, so there we have it. <laughs> there we have it. You know, mistakes yeah. are inevitable. And so uh, learning to get over mistakes and learn from them is, is, is crucial in any business. Because, you know, if you think about people who are creative, some of the most creative thinkers in our times, um, they've all made mistakes. The only difference between extremely creative people and all of us, if you like, is that you, they know that most of their ideas won't see the light of day. They know that they'll fail. That, that's really the big difference. Um, so if, if you're somebody that is fearful of being seen as stupid or inept or of being judged harshly for your job and you let those thoughts hold you back from uh, being creative then it's you're going to start your development and and, and and the place you work so uh, you know you really have to kind of question yourself and I think those people who who, who aren't obstructed by these fears of how they might be seen you know they're more willing to make mistakes and mistakes mm. are inevitable by the way i think bill gates said it best he said uh, he didn't say about mistakes but he said about success it's a lousy teacher and it's true nobody learns from success <laughs> people learn from yeah. failures uh, a lot seems to have changed over the past 18 months certainly the interactions communication between people's changed as we've been based or many of us have been based remotely uh, for the first mm -hmm. time your role i know is not just as a psychotherapist you act as a coach and as a consultant what what sort of trends have you seen emerge particularly over the past 18 months perhaps resulting from the change in circumstances for the way people work are you seeing certain uh, kind of requests from people to try and help them solve problems which you know perhaps weren't as common before i mean personally i haven't seen a change in trends, you know, in the sense of, you know, my work, people are coming to me with the same sorts of uh, concerns, if you like. Um, so, but I, I think generally with the, with, with the pandemic and the lockdown, what we are seeing, I guess, in the workplace is a kind of a shift in power, really. Um, workers are feeling more empowered. They're, they're making more demands on their work environment and and uh it's not a bad thing at all um you know there's an opportunity to rethink 
how we work and uh, you know do people have a right uh, to voice their kind of concerns and tell people how they work best and so uh, I think we you know the potential we can come out of this much much better because in doing that I think there's a recognition you know that people come to work they're much more than units of production you know they're human beings and you know, to ask them to travel ridiculous hours and under really unfair conditions and, and make unfair demands on their on their time is is, is not realistic. So people are starting to say, look, we're, we're only human. And, you know, we want we want our workplace to kind of see us for who we are. So I think there's some very good things that can come out of this. One last question, and I, I, this is probably a question from me, actually, related to my experience. So I, I've kind of pivoted my career over the past 18 months, and I speak to a lot of people who are going through the same sort of experience as me. Perhaps they feel like they want to try something different, and that might just be moving within the same organization. It might be wanting to follow their passion for a particular subject and start writing about it or trying to create a business, or it might be just fundamentally doing something very different. Now, there's, there's, there's quite challenging moments along the way sometimes where you, you, you're feeling, you know, am I doing the right thing? Should I actually retreat into what I was doing before? I'm, I'm interested in when you should just trust the process. Have you got any thoughts to share about that and knowing the right moment to make that change or when, or when to just keep on pushing on and trusting the process? Mm. Well, it's such a big question, really. It's due with thinking about one's own personal journey and their own kind of values, how they think about their direction and their professional growth. There's so many questions in that, really. Um, mm. But I would say, you know, something that holds people back quite a lot, what I see, is that is their fear of um, just leaping into the unknown. Um, you know, sometimes what people are looking for is a kind of uncertainty-free outcome. And, you know, that's not likely to exist. Yeah. And and so I think people can prepare themselves by also, you know, of course you have to be hopeful, you have to be optimistic. If you're going to make changes, you, of course you have to believe it's for the better. Um, but also kind of be willing to be with, with the surprises and the uncertainties that might come with it. You know, that's part of it. Change is scary. You know, it's confusing. It's demands parts of us perhaps we're not fully equipped with. So change is, change is not easy. And yet all of us, everyone's working in, you know, the whole world culture, work is changing so quickly. So having a capacity to cope with change is, is um, really an important skill these days because sometimes you might decide to change, but oftentimes change is forced on people. So being able to tolerate it and make use of it and see the potential in change and the opportunity in change is really going to be a very important skill. Well, Naomi, thanks so much for joining us today. Your book was really thought-provoking for me. It made me, it made me think entirely differently about many of the challenges we experience in the workplace. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. That was my conversation with Naomi Shragai. You'll find a link to her book and her social feeds in the show notes. Next week, we'll discuss purpose from both a personal and a business perspective. I'm joined by Jeff McDonald, who previously led Unilever's business transformation 
as their global VP responsible for HR, marketing, comms, sustainability and talent. He's now a mental health campaigner and he works with organisations who put purpose at the centre of their business strategy. Tune in because you'll hear some excellent and pragmatic insights about the reality of achieving this. And I'll give you a quick preview. It will only work if it contributes towards the bottom line. That's enough from me today. Until next week, have a good one.